Would you turn with me to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 4. I want to read just two verses, verse 10 and 11. The 24 elders, and by the way, those 24 elders are representative of the millions and millions of people who are in heaven and will be in heaven, and they are doing, in representation of all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, what all of us will do one day. Notice what it says. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. That's the Lord Jesus. And will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. Join me in prayer, will you? Father, we can't quite imagine what that scene is going to be like when all of us, millions and millions, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, are going to fall down before the throne, the one who is seated on the throne, and worship him. And we're all going to cast our crowns at his feet, because he, is, he alone is, is worthy of receiving those crowns. And we're all going to sing together that day. What a tremendous, tremendous chorus it's going to be. Everyone singing, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Help us to catch a glimpse of that this morning as we wait before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you will, turn to Luke, the fifth chapter. Luke, the fifth chapter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. A very interesting little insert, an account that the... The Spirit of God is put in here to help you and me understand a very dominant truth in the Scriptures. And that's what we want to see this morning. Now it came about, while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now that's Jesus who is preaching. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. 
And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, let your, let your sanctified imaginations run a little bit, and let's put ourselves into that scene. Try and, try and think of what was happening in this little story. You've got these four commercial, qualified, experienced fishermen they knew where to fish. They knew how to fish. They had done it all. They grew up doing that. This was their life. They probably learned it from their parents, their fathers. Here they'd fished all night, and they hadn't caught anything. Now, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you were in their place? Some of the thoughts that come to me as I think of how I would feel, number one, I'd be disgusted. Having worked all night, now here we are, night's over, the day has started, I'm tired, these other three fellows are tired. None of us are, are, are believers yet. You've got to remember that. These were, these were men who hadn't followed Jesus yet, so their language was probably a little bit, you know, a little bit un, unclean. They were probably saying to one another a few things that, that you say when you're disgusted. And, and they were tired, and they were dirty, and they were hungry. So here they are. They, they've done everything, and they're, and they're discouraged, and along comes this, this crowd, and it catches their attention. And, and there's a man leading the crowd. Now, they really don't know much about this man. Remember that now. They, they have not really had much time with Jesus. They probably have heard about him because almost everybody had. They had heard something about this man who came and, and healed sick people and did all kinds of things and was preaching and, and all the rest of it. The word was getting around. So they probably knew something about but they had never been near him probably or spent any time in his presence. And here he comes. 
He asks, because the crowd is pretty good size apparently, and so he asks if he can use one of the boats to get away a little bit, just to get a little room so that he can talk to the crowd because they were pressing in on him. He had already gained such a reputation that people just wanted to touch him. They wanted to get near to him. And he needed a little bit of space in order to be able to talk to them. So he asked if he could get into one of the boats, and they said sure. So he got into Simon's boat, and they pushed it out just a little ways. And he sat in the boat, and he taught these people. All right, now here we are. And here are these these four fishermen. What are they doing? They're washing their nets while this is going on. Picture it. Jesus is sitting in the boat. The crowd is on the shore and up on the beach there and listening. And right there in front of Jesus, because he's in one of their boats, they're washing their nets down in the water. But at the same time, they are hearing everything that Jesus is saying. They probably hadn't heard some of these things before. Jesus finishes his preaching. He sends the crowd away. And now it's just the four fishermen and Jesus there. And he says, now, fellas, why don't you put your, your boats out into the deep water and let down your nets and catch some fish? And why are you sitting here doing nothing? And Peter, and, and Peter is sort of like you and me. Uh, well, let me change it. He's like me. Peter's impetuous. We see that over and over again. Remember when, when they came to take Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and it was Peter who took out his sword and swoped at that guy and took his ear off? Remember that? That's Peter. That's some of us, I think. Anyway, Peter speaks for the group. And he says, now, Master, it's interesting he used that word. He didn't say Lord. He said, Master, teacher. That's all it meant. He knew Jesus was a teacher because he had just heard him teaching. So he said, Master, we have worked all night and didn't catch a thing. Now, in that statement... Peter was saying, we are professional fishermen. We have done everything we know how, and we didn't catch anything. Now, how often do we say that to Jesus? When he asks us to do something, and we say, we've tried that, we've done it, he says, hey, why don't you go next door and get acquainted with your neighbor and and see if you can develop a relationship. Well, I've tried, and they don't seem to be very friendly, and And besides, I like the people across the street more and so on. And Jesus says, no, go try it again. Well, I've done everything I know how. And he says, no, try one more time. Peter made the statement. There's a pause between that part of the statement and the next phrase. We've toiled all night and didn't catch a thing. We've done everything we know how as professional fishermen. And we didn't catch anything. Pause. But, nevertheless, because you say so, I'll do it. See what was happening at this point? Peter was beginning to catch some kind of a glimmer of understanding regarding the uniqueness of this teacher, this person. This man, Jesus, there was an authority about him that Peter recognized. And so he said, because you say so, we'll do it. Now, I want you to think of something. 
This man that came by was a carpenter by trade. He didn't know anything about fishing, at least not from the human standpoint. He was an itinerant preacher, walking around, talking to people, having little groups gather here and there. And he's telling these men what they should do as fishermen. It does not make sense. And I think a lot of times you and I struggle with that same thing. We have the area of our expertise, whatever that might be. And we think we know what the best way to carry that out is. And yet the Word of God says to us that there's something different that we ought to do. That God is asking us to do something different. That may be out of step with what everybody else is doing. And we think because we have figured it out so well and we know our area of of responsibility so well, we think we know what's best. Here was, here was this professional fisherman listening to this itinerant preacher who was a carpenter by trade. But he had sensed something unique, and so he said, we'll do it. Now, I want you to understand one other thing. What Jesus asked them to do did not make sense. It did not make sense. Number one. The fishing in that part of the world, and I've just studied this again to make sure that my reference points are accurate. The fishing in that part of the world is done at night. By the time morning comes, the fishing is not good. Here it was well into the morning, and Jesus is telling them to go fish. It did not make sense. The second thing that didn't make sense was what he asked them to do, to go out into the deep water and let down their nets. Let me explain why. In those lands, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Asia, I've watched these fishermen. The way they fish, because their boats are small, and their nets are not large, their nets are about eight foot wide, and probably a hundred feet, a hundred and fifty feet long, long, narrow nets. They fold them carefully into the back of their little rowboat. And then they drive a stake into the sand, tie one end of the net. Then one man gets in the boat with the oars and the other man gets at the back of the boat and they start rowing. And he lets out the net gradually, slowly. And they row in a large semicircle. And they come back to shore over there. Now, their net is out there, so one of them gets at that end and one at the other. In fact, that's why most of the time there are four men fishing. They get two at each end, and they start hauling that net in. That's not an easy job, that larger net. And as they pull it in, they move toward one another. When they finally end up, they have a semicircle about 15 feet wide and about 15 feet deep. The net is out there, and they're standing here. And all the fish are caught in there, and they're jumping. Then what they do, while two men hold the net, the other two get in the water, and with their hands, pick up the fish and throw them on the shore. That's the way they fish. Their boats and their nets are not made for deep water fishing. That's why their boats were almost sinking. That's why their nets were almost breaking. 
You see, what Jesus asked them to do was illogical. And many times we think that what he asks you and me to do is illogical. But because he is who he claims to be, because he is Lord, he knows what he's asking. And you know the rest of the story. We're just reviewing this. We're putting ourselves into the picture. And in a minute, we want to learn some things from this story. This is what was going on. So they tried to pull a net up. They couldn't. They had to call the other boat out. They finally got it up. They got both boats so full they were sinking. Now notice what happened to Peter. The biggest catch they had ever gotten, probably. And in verse 8 of this little passage we just read, you see what happened to Peter. He fell, he hurried as quickly as he could to the shore where Jesus was, and he fell at his feet. And he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He was more taken up with the person of Jesus Christ than the many fish. The results that they had gotten. Now that's the story. We'll see a little bit more in just a moment. Let's find out what God has for you and me to learn out of this particular story that will affect you and me in our lives. In the fifth verse, we see the first principle. We see the recognition of the authority of Jesus. Do you remember in the second chapter of Philippians, it says this, that God has given to Jesus a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Things in heaven, things on earth, and things under the earth. Every creature will recognize that Jesus is Lord. He has been given that authority by God the Father. That isn't something we ascribe to Him somehow when we say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. That's a decision we make regarding our lives, yes, but as far as His being Lord is concerned, He is Lord. That's a predetermined fact because God the Father has ordained that. And he has established Jesus Christ with the authority of lordship. And we see Peter recognizing that in verse 5. Nevertheless, because you say so, I will do it. My friend, there are areas of your life and mine that we want somehow to negotiate or to hold on to. Do you remember the story of the young man who came to Jesus and he said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he named some. And the young man said, I've kept them all since my youth. And Jesus said, all right, but there's one thing lacking. It's interesting. One thing lacking. You've done all these other things, and that's good. 
But there's one thing still lacking. Go and sell everything you have and then give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. It says a young man went away very sorrowful. Now, why do you think he went away sorrowful? Because of the money? I don't think so. It's because he didn't want to give up that decision-making authority in his life. He wanted to make the final authority regarding what he did with his money. In that case, he didn't want to give that over to Jesus. He wanted to maintain the veto power. We do that. We keep that part of our life, whatever it might be. We're willing to do many things for Jesus. But that one thing we want to hold on to. That's one area that we feel we know better what to do with. And until we come to the place where we recognize that Jesus is worthy, just as we read, worthy of the best that we are and the best that we have, until we reach that place and determine that and decide that and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do. And you have the authority in my life to make any choice, make any decision, put me anywhere you want, ask me to do whatever you will, I'll do it. That's what it means to recognize his authority. He has the authority. Now notice in verses 6 and 7, the amazing results of obeying him. And we've already talked about them. More fish, it says that they were amazed. Not only Peter, but all of them. They were amazed because they had never seen anything like it. Do you know, I believe that whenever we are willing to allow God to take our lives and do whatever he wants with them, we will be amazed at the results, whatever those might be. When we were living in Ecuador, as missionaries down there for some almost six years, I had the privilege of getting to know some young men. Some of you are familiar with their names, some of you are not. They were five young men who later were killed by the Alka Indians in 1956, trying to reach that Stone Age tribe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a book. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to you. A book written by Elizabeth Elliot that tells a story, and it's called Through Gates of Splendor. It's, an, it's a unique story of a current missionary experience. These young men, outstanding, all in their, in their mid-thirties, in their age bracket, men who loved God, and God laid on their hearts the desire to reach that tribe. And they began doing some interesting things. Nate Saint was the pilot. I had flown with Nate on several occasions into the jungles of, of Ecuador back in those those tropical jungles, the Amazon jungles, and I'd had the privilege of preaching to a number of tribes. On one occasion, I, I preached to the Hivaro headhunters. And they came to the meeting, literally, with the little heads tied on their, on their belts, because those are trophies of their, of their machismo, you know, their strength. And they have a way of taking 
a human head and shrinking it down to the size of an orange and maintaining recognizable qualities. And they would come with those little heads on their belts. I flew with Nate, as I say, a number of times. Nate was the man who devised a way, after he spotted this, this Alka tribe, of dropping gifts on a rope in such a way he had figured out how high he had to fly, what size a circle he had to fly in, so that that rope, when it reached the ground, was no longer spinning. He figured all that out in his head. And they dropped gifts to these Indians. And then eventually the Indians gave them some gifts back, put them back in the little gift basket. And then the men decided to go in and try and make contact with them. So Nate found a beach, a stretch of beach on the river Kudarai. And he tried it out. And he took a lot of air out of his tires because the sand was soft. And he, and he tried landing on it. And eventually he was able to work it out. And he began taking the men in, one at a time. Eventually they were there. On a Friday they arrived. And they began calling out phrases that they had learned in the Alka, Alka language from one Alka who had escaped. And one by one, three Alkas appeared, a man and two women. And they came across the river. And they sat with them and ate. Then they went to sleep that night, and the next morning the Alkas were gone. And the men called and tried to get them back. And they never came back. But on Sunday morning, a group of men came back and speared all five of these men to death. Five young men in the prime of life seeking to glorify God, doing what Jesus had asked them to do, and now their lives were gone. And it seemed like a tragedy, except, except that the one who has all authority had been in control. And Betty Elliott, who wrote the book, the husband, uh, the wife of Jim Elliott, and Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint the pilot, moved in to live among those Alcas. And, and Betty took her little daughter, Valerie, with her. Valerie grew up for several years in that tribe. And today, the major part of that tribe has come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Five lives... Pretty big cost, but a whole tribe. So the question comes down to whether or not I really believe that Jesus has authority. Can I give him my life, my family, everything I own, and say, Jesus, you are worthy of the best that I am and the best that I have. And I'm not going to hold anything back. That's what it means to recognize his authority, and then to see the amazing results when we obey him in that way. Now look at verse 8. That's the next step in this little process. Comes running to Jesus and he falls at his feet. Literally at his knees. What he did was he wrapped his arms around the knees of Jesus and just cowered almost in his presence. He must have, because later Jesus said, don't be afraid. And Peter says, depart from me. Now notice, notice the difference in his terminology. 
Before, when he talked to Jesus, he said, Teacher. Now he says, Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Any time that we recognize the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize our own unworthiness. And it, and it causes us to recognize that there are areas that we, that we need to confess and that God needs to change and, and God needs to, to work in our lives to make us more like himself. God says to you and to me in Romans 8.29 that he has committed himself to conforming us to the image of his Son. He wants us to be like Jesus. And that begins when we recognize the worthiness of the Lord Jesus. And we see that he, that he deserves from you and from me the very best that we are and the very best that we have. And we say, Father, whatever you need to do to make me what you want me to be, I want you to do that. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Gee, Peter wasn't concerned with the blessing, the, all this fish that they had caught. That wasn't important to him. What was important was a recognition of who Jesus is. And now he calls him Lord. He recognizes his authority. I wonder. Many, many come to Jesus and receive forgiveness, cleansing, the promise of eternal life. All that God has for you and for me when we are forgiven of our sin as we come to Jesus and confess. But many of us don't go much further than that because we fail to recognize that He deserves to be Lord of our lives as well. Jesus is Lord. We can't separate Him. We can't say, all right, I've received him as my Savior. Someday I'll think about him as my Lord. No, we can't do that. Jesus is Savior and Lord. He is Lord. But very often we do not allow him that authority in our lives. We don't allow him to, to control and possess our lives as Lord. Peter was coming to that place now. Peter was saying, I recognize something now that I hadn't before. I recognize that I'm unworthy. I recognize that you are Lord. And notice Jesus' response in verse 9. Actually, it's verse 10. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what he says to you and to me this morning. Whatever it is he is asking you this morning, as he speaks to you, as he touches your heart, whatever it is he's asking you, he says, don't be afraid. I'm in control. I have authority. Nothing's going to happen to you that I don't want to happen, that I don't allow to happen in my plan, if, if you will trust me with your life. Nothing will happen. He is Lord. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't hold back. I know what I'm doing. And then finally, the commitment and obedience that we see in these men. This was the beginning of their, of their walking with Jesus for those next three and a half years. 
of their, their walking seminary, of their glorious experience of living with Jesus. This was the beginning of it. When they had brought their boats to land. Now remember, the boats were full of fish. As I said before, probably one of the biggest catches they'd ever had. It would have been one of the most lucrative fishing trips they'd ever had. They brought their boats to fish. Uh, to their, their, start again. They brought their boats to the shore, and they left them there, and they left everything and followed him. Why? Well, they were beginning to recognize that Jesus is worthy of the best that I have and the best that I am. It's a basic attitude that God asks us to maintain every day. Every day, in every situation. Is He Lord? Is He worthy of the best that I am and the best that I have? The way I treat my wife the way I treat my children, the way I handle my finances, the things that I allow my eyes to see, the places that I go. Is he, is he worthy of the best that I am and the best that I have? Turn with me to finalize our time to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his, epistle, his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, for one, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered. Now, here's Peter. This is many, many days later, certainly, perhaps months later. The same Peter now. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus asks us that this morning. We read at the beginning that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. We've read that he is the Lord. God has made him Lord. But the question really comes down to who do I say that Jesus is in my life? Who do you say that Jesus is in your life? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to do something a little different. If you'll take the, the song sheet that you were given, if you have it there, At the bottom, you'll see the words to an old hymn. Take my life, 
and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I'm going to ask you to do something very thoughtfully and very honestly. I want you to take a few moments to just read the words carefully. Just read the words. you'll notice that the hymn refers to a number of areas of our life. We're going to sing this hymn very quietly. Now, some of you may not know it, and that's all right. Those who do, help me out. We're going to sing it quietly and slowly. And what I would like to ask you to do this morning, as you've looked at those words, if there is an area that God is speaking to you about, that you want to give him this morning. Maybe you've done it before, but you want to rededicate that to God this morning. As we come to that phrase, whatever that phrase might be, it may be your life, it may be your hands, your lips, your feet, your possessions. As we come to that place, as we're singing this, quietly stand up, as we sing that phrase, and then sit down again. Now we'll continue to sing, and you may stand more than once. But let this be a time of rededication in recognition of the fact that Jesus is worthy of the best that I am and the best that I have. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. All right? We're going to sing it slowly. Look ahead. And if there's a phrase that identifies something you want to rededicate to him this morning, just stand as we sing the phrase and then sit down again. And if there's more than one, you can repeat that. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the of thy love at the impulse of thy love take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and I will sing always only for my King. Always only for 
silver, my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Gracious Father, because you look on the hearts of men, you have seen what's happened this morning here. And these who have, have stood have brought areas of their life in a new way to you this morning because, because Jesus is worthy of the best that we are and the best that we have. Bless them. Encourage them this morning. Send them away with a new sense of commitment and purpose and hope. May the God of hope Fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.